Welcome to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. The Vancouver Writers' Fest connects people to exceptional books, ideas, and dialogue through year-round programming that ignites a passion for words and the world around us. I'm Leslie Hertig, Artistic Director, and I'm very happy to share this conversation featuring Mona Awad, Alif Batuman, and Anna Kana Schofield in conversation with Globe and Mail journalist Marsha Liederman. This event was recorded live on Thursday, October 24, 2019, at the Waterfront Theatre in Vancouver. This event features three novelists in conversation about their new books, Anna Kana Schofield with Bina, Mona Awad with Bunny, and Alif Batuman with The Idiot. Hello. 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 The microphone is working. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Marsha Liederman. I write for the Globe and Mail. I'm the Western Arts Correspondent. Thank you. That must be my friend who came with me. Um, I'd like to begin by acknowledging the land that we are on. We are on the ancestral and unceded lands of the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh. Thank you for having us here in this beautiful place. This event is called Bina, Bunny, and the Idiot. And I'd like to mention that Elif Batman's appearance is thanks to the financial support of the Consulate General of the United States of America and the donors to the Hal Wake Legacy Fund. I have to tell you a few things. Please silence your phones. You don't have to turn them off, just put them on silent, thank you. Uh, and then you are encouraged to tweet about the event afterward if you like it, and even if you don't, go for it. Uh, and then later this evening you'll receive a feedback survey by email. Uh, please take a moment to complete it, share your thoughts. Uh, the festival relies on your feedback to make these events even better. And apparently they read all the comments. So be kind, uh, no, be honest. Um, and then also following the event, there will be book sales and a signing with our authors in the lobby. Please support the authors and purchase their books anyway. I am sure you're going to want to purchase them after you hear from them because these women are amazing. Um, thank you to all the volunteers and supporters, especially our title sponsor, CMHC Granville Island. The Government of BC, City of Vancouver, Canadian Heritage, BC Arts Council, and Canada Council for the Arts. Uh, the Festival Bookstore is in a new place this year. Uh, it's a storefront location at 1359 Cartwright, across from Festival Headquarters. Um, it's open day and night. You can buy books from all the featured authors. Uh, and I, I'll let you know how the event is going to go. I'm going to introduce the authors. They'll come out on stage, and I'll tell you a bit more about them. We'll get a brief reading from each of them, then we'll chat, then we'll open the floor for a Q&A from you guys, the real the important questions of the night, and then uh, there'll be a book signing afterward. So please join me in welcoming the following amazing authors, Mona Awad, Elif Batchman, and Anna Kana Schofield. No, it's not a mistake that Anna Kana has curlers in her hair. Um, 
I have been so excited about this evening. I don't think I've ever had so much fun preparing for an event because these books are a scream, sometimes literally, uh, and so are these women. Um, they're so smart, so funny. Their books are so innovative, intelligent. Um, they're hilarious and crushing. Um, they deal with female friendship, unreliable narrators, stories, lies, love and loss. They're wonderful. And I also love the title for the event, so I've decided we'll stick with that order for the readings. Um, so I will begin with the author of Bina. Anna Cana Schofield was born in 1971 in the Irish diaspora of England and raised north of London. <laughs> I like that, I got a laugh. Uh, with, that, wasn't, that wasn't meant to be funny, but I'm laugh. Um, she made frequent trips to Ireland to visit family. She later moved to Dublin, then Canada. She's lived in Vancouver since 1999. Her first novel, Malarkey, won the Amazon First Novel Award, the debut Litzer Prize for Fiction in the US, and was a finalist for the Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize here in BC. Her second novel, Martin John, was shortlisted for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and a number of other prestigious awards. We don't have all night, let's be honest. Um, Bina was published in the spring. It's subtitled, A Novel in Warnings, and it's dedicated to every woman who has had enough, and who among us has not had enough. <laughs> Please welcome Anna Cana Schofield. Thank you, thank you. Lovely to be uh, here on home soil. Um, I do live in Vancouver, this is my 20th year. And I, I left my rollers in because, as you know, we are surrounded by this development juggernaut. We are currently a theatre, and it's 8.30, but the blue fences could go up. And by 9.30, we could be a condo building. <laughs> so I don't want to wake up in the morning with bad hair. Um, and it's also thematically important to my reading. Um, yeah, just a, a big shout out to, to Leslie and the gang uh, doing an amazing job and Marsha and the gang doing an amazing job. And uh, yeah, it just means a great deal to me to be on home soil because I've been all over the country and now I'm here. And I think that's already five minutes, so I better start reading. Uh, so Bina, I'm going to read a little bit about our Bina, a woman who's had enough. Uh, all you... <laughs> Uh, this is a novel really about end-of-life choice uh, and actually about female friendship. Um, all you really need to know is uh, at the beginning of the novel, Bina has been arrested for aiding and abetting in the um, helping someone to end their life. And she's been lumbered with this man, Eddie, for an awful number of years. And when she got arrested, she finally got rid of him. So here she is, and she's, she's well, you'll, see, you'll hear. I woke starved at midnight after very bad David Bowie dreams. His face was half penguin and half blue. He was fully penguin on the bottom, yet he was wearing yellow tights and nothing on his top half, but he'd no wings. How could he be wearing yellow tights if he was penguin on the bottom? It's why I do not like waking from bad dreams. I'll have to scratch that out. Should I lose the yellow or the penguin? Which will perturb you less? No matter. I've no warning to share over David Bowie dreams. If you have them, you'll grow into them. Fact. 
but never in my life. It was a sheltered enough life till I imported Eddie into it. Have I had such visitations? I've sympathy for people caught unawares by visits from saints. I would never be right near a grotto again. Oh, plenty. Sure, I'd plenty, plenty dreams. I'd had swallowing, chewing gum dreams, falling down a well and breaking my neck dreams, forgetting where I live dreams, on my holiday in Rome dreams, catching a too big fish that pulled me into the sea dreams. I'd had them all, but never a pop star in transitions to the aquatic wearing yellow tights. I opened the back door in an attempt to resolve the images and was gasping as I shut it. So I should explain that there's a big gang of granolas, crusties, who've camped at the back of Bina's house to, to protect her from, from the police who are coming to get her. The numbnail lords um, had lit a fire on top of where I buried four ducks six years ago. Eddie had a role in their deaths. He reversed a trailer over the poor creatures who thought and assumed they were napping safely inside the enclosure I had them living in. Eddie blamed me and said I needed an outside light. I remember the exchange. I came out of the house with my angry arms aloft. He continued reversing. I screamed at him. He continued reversing. I attempted to place myself between the ducks and his reversing. He opened the door. What are you doing? You're on the ducks, I said. Get off the ducks. What's that? He said, I can't hear you. Get off the fucking ducks. You've killed them dead. He tried to insist it was the only route and it took another 90 seconds of cursing at him before he drove forward and turned the monster off. He walked a few steps and stared. Fuck, he said. I told you to put in an outside light. Then I let out an anguished growl and called him a murderer and that he was not to cross my mat until he had cleaned up the carnage he had created. Later, he did apologize, not to me. He said he felt sorry for the ducks, and that if he hadn't squashed them so bad, we could have put them in a pot like the Chinese do, and eat them. I resolved to dispose of them myself for fear they could suffer further, and he might try to sell them to a takeaway, because that is how stupid he was. Sure enough, I found he put them in individual carrier bags, and when I opened them, he'd taken their heads off with an axe. Dismal, 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 dismal. I took care to give them a proper burial spot, and I surrounded it with lumps of brick so no Egypt could drive over it without first bursting his tires. And this circle of bricks is, I must suppose, why these crusties have designated it their fire pit. I had to go up and confront them. They were going to torch the duck's bones. If I'd wanted them made ashes, I'd have lit them on fire myself. I will say one thing, as I stood outside dithering about going up, it was clear that I could no longer take assertive decisions the way I once could. Suspiciously, as soon as Eddie left, I lost whatever small courage I had. The realization I was lacking the basic courage to walk outside my door and confront a gang of misery-making, uninvited do-gooders propelled me and my poker back indoors to drop down into the chair beside my solid fuel range. 
Nothing remarkable to say about it. I can't afford oil, fierce expensive. It leaks smoke and it's nothing but a punishment to live beside. It was not a comfortable landing as there was a telephone directory and three damp towels left on the chair. The corner of the directory hit sharp an area of my body I will not be disclosing and caused me to rise as hurriedly as I sank. I helicoptered about, more useless foostering, until I made my way back to bed, still hungry. Hungry and now more confused than David Bowie's visits could ever make me. There's nothing quite as confusing as yourself, I concluded. This is likely why so many of us succumb to absolute confusion, the dementia in the end. Thank you. Thank you, that was great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Mona Awad was born in 1978 in Montreal to an Egyptian father and French-Canadian mother. She received her MFA in fiction from Brown University and a PhD in English and creative writing from the University of Denver. She now lives in Boston. Her first book, 13 Ways of Looking at a Fat Girl, won the Amazon Best First Novel Award the Colorado Book Award, and was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize and the Arab American Book Award. Her novel, Bunny, was published in June, and it is, at turns, hilarious and terrifying. It's Mean Girls meets Carrie meets Heathers meets Fatal Attraction meets the second season of Girls. <laughs> I think the protagonist, Samantha, puts it best when she says toward the end of the book, as things begin to both unravel and become clear, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> Please welcome Mona Awad. Hi everyone. Um, thank you so much, Marsha, for that introduction. And thank you so much to Vancouver uh, Writers Fest for inviting me. It's such an honor to share the stage with these writers. Um, I'm gonna read from the middle of Bunny, so just to give you some context, um, that was a great description, by the way. Um, so basically, it, it takes place um, at an Ivy League college, and it's about a group of uh, privileged MFA students, um, these women, who call each other Bunny, and they move and speak as one. And the story is told from the perspective of this outsider student, uh, Samantha Heather Mackey. Uh, who hates the bunnies, um, but she's also drawn to them in spite of herself. And as the book progresses, she gets sucked into their cult-like clique. And as it turns out, they're doing something <clears throat> very uh, magical and violent off campus involving bunnies. Um, they're conjuring men out of bunnies, <laughs> literally. Um, so um, at this point in the book, Samantha is sucked in to the whole thing, and uh, they're speaking in one voice. Um, so I'll just read, read this passage. We huddle hug on the velvety green among the cherry blossom trees. We link arms. We close our eyes the better to feel each other's bodies. We form a hot little circle of love and understanding. We press our faces into our faces our cheeks against our cheeks, our eyelashes tickling our skins like little hummingbird wings, like bunny nose twitches. Oh, bunny, I love you. 
I love you, Bunny. We cannot say how long we have been here hugging like this because it is that time of day where we thank each other for breathing. Post-workshop hug time. A hug to take away all of our owies. The ones that come with sharing your story, a.k.a. soul, in a classroom setting. Though today, we really don't need one. We were so brilliant in the cave today. We were such bright, shining lights. We were so the daughters of Wolf, you should have seen us. In fact, halfway through the class, we had to put on sunglasses to shield our eyes from how bright our stars were. We told each other, Bunny, you are so brilliant. You are so famous in waiting. Can we have your autograph now, please? The poets, a.k.a. the reptile people, pass us huddle-hugging on the green. They are getting out of their own workshop with their professor, Silky, who wants to have sex with us so badly and has made this known in so many silky, nonverbal ways. The poets are on their way to get beers in the basement bar across the street, which smells of stale kegs and fake cheese. They stare at us with judgy eyes as they pass, grunting nobly in their fake poor clothes. They think we are such stupid girls. Fuck you, poets. You think you are so smart, so cool with your word art. You have no idea. Can you conjure hybrid spaces? Can you perform the body and have the body perform literally? Can you make a Viking masseuse, a pre-TB Keats, a talkie Tim Riggins? Can you make a bunny explode with the combined force of your eight eyes? Ten bunny, your eyes too. It is so amazing to see the bunny explode, by the way. We are barely even grossed out anymore. Now we light a cigarette with the guts still in our hair and we lean against Bunny's bloody shoulder and we wait for the knock on the door. It is so amazing when we hear the knock-knock sound. It is so amazing to see a boy of flesh smiling at us where a bunny used to be. Hello, Samantha, he'll say. Tell me everything. Not a boy, Bunny, remember, a hybrid or a darling or a draft. We keep telling you. It makes us feel a little like God. No, we can't go that far. In fact, we are a little fearful of God right now, if he's out there. She, Bunny, if she's out there. Or it. We like to think of it more as an energy. And don't worry, it would so approve of us. Because look at what we just did. Look at him. So what if they all look the same, like Cape Cod in boy form? Sometimes like the classic film stars or fairy tale princes of yesteryear. So what if they all say the same things? Tell me everything. Your beauty is like screaming, like Proust, like a Frenchy film complete with soundtrack. You're a daughter of Wolf. So what if anatomically there are some things missing? Essential things like hands, genitals, an untwisted mouth, possibly a soul. Still, it's a good start. We'll get better. In the meantime, look, he is holding an orchid just for us, which, if we take it from him quickly, he won't eat first. He is brushing our hair, doing it so tenderly, he doesn't mean to wrap the brush handle against our scalp at all. He is painting strange flowers and blobby birds on our fingernails. He is saying we are so beautiful and wild like the black moors of the Brontes.
He is saying our talents are as deep as the North Sea. He is saying, love your dress. He is saying, Pinkberry, would you like some? He is helping us in the kitchen to make light and sunnies or lady gray tea. And so what if he is more trouble than he is help? So what if he cries when we say, will you fuck us? So what if he explodes when we say, tell me something about you? It's amazing what it promises. We're not bored in the slightest ever, ever. We're blown away. The ones that don't work out for us for a number of reasons we let go. Really, it's the best thing for them, Bunny says. The ones who bite, the ones who scream, usually get the axe, unless Bunny is too tired to put on her apron. Then they go in the basement for a while until Bunny feels like taking a long, long drive. That's when we lead them out the back door at a very dark hour. We drive them out to a field or to a warehouse area on the west side and drop them off. Bunny says we're setting them free. Usually Bunny takes them because she has the SUV and the strongest emotional constitution. We went with her once. Keep me company, Bunny, Bunny said. And after this, we can get drive-through fries. Okay, Bunny, we said. But it was a not nice drive. What with the whimpering boys, the whimpering hybrids, Bunny, in the trunk, whimpering their scrambled words. Hunch you, I will. Everything tell me. Virginia Woolf is not your daughter. I sentence you to a nuanced labyrinth. Bunny tried to drown them out by cranking her cherubic harp music, but we could still hear them. Why do we have to take them so far, we asked her. Bunny, we already told you. Otherwise, they come back. Is that really ethical, though, Bunny? to just take them to the other side of town and leave them there? If they're dangerous, if they have nowhere to go? Ethical, Bunny repeated, like she'd never heard the word. Even though obviously she had, she is so, so smart. She has been going to the best schools in the world since she was five. She can play the oboe and she can fence and she speaks three dead languages. Ethical, Bunny said, like we'd made the word up, like it was just some silly monster we were trying to make out of our own hair, which she herself lovingly braided for us. She stared at the windshield. Uh-oh, we upset her. Don't be upset, Bunny. We think of it as art meets life, Bunny. We're putting art into the world. It's like a living, interactive installation, you know? But I mean, if you'd rather kill them, you go right ahead, Bunny. No, that's okay. We can't bring ourselves to brandish an axe just yet. Bunny knows that. We have nightmares every night as it is. Bunny knows that too. And who is there for us when we wake up? Bunny is. Shh, Bunny, Bunny will say, stroking our damp forehead, our sticky braids, putting her hand on our heart to stop it from beating. Take these, they'll help you sleep. She turned up the cherubic harp music. Each song is 20 minutes long and meanders like a bitchy cat. The woman's high, folksy voice hurts our teeth, but we would never tell Bunny this. We said we love this song so much, but Bunny wasn't listening. Bunny was singing along in her own high voice. Cherubic harp music is her very, very favorite. Thank you. <laughs> I forgot where I was. I was just like, this is so fun. <laughs> Thank you. Elif Batman was born in New York in 1977 to immigrants from Turkey, and she was raised in New Jersey. She did her undergrad at Harvard and has a PhD in comparative literature from Stanford, where she also taught in the interdisciplinary humanities program. So, underachiever. 
She now lives in New York City, where she's been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 2010. Her first book, The Possessed, Adventures with Russian Books and the People Who Read Them, was a work of nonfiction, and it's amazing. The Idiot, her first novel, is also amazing and was, amazingly, a finalist for the 2018 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction. It takes place in 1995, where her protagonist is a first-year Turkish-American student at Harvard who is learning not just about creative writing and how to speak Russian, but also the joys and frustrations of a new way of communicating, email. Please welcome Elif Badaman. Thank you so much for that introduction and thank you all for coming. I'm so excited to be here with these incredible writers. Um, I'm just gonna read the beginning of The Idiot, which, um, yeah, it's about, uh, um, it's, it's about my experiences in 1995 when I was an undergrad in, in college. And uh, I wrote the first draft in the year 2000, 2001, uh, and then, um, and then I broke my arm and ran out of money and went back to grad school and uh, I had really good health insurance there. <clears throat> and so I got a PhD in Russian literature and then all this other stuff happened. But, uh, and then I edited it when I, um, when I had a bunch of other even worse problems in uh, 2015. So by then I was like 38 and I, um, I uh, uh, just downloaded it from the cloud and I started reading it and I was like, oh my, like I wrote a historical novel and like I, I didn't have to do anything. Time just did it. Time just made it happen in 15 years. Uh, so I'm just going to read the beginning. Um, I didn't know what email was until I got to college. I had heard of email, and I knew that in some sense I would have it. You'll be so fancy, said my mother's sister, who had married a computer scientist, sending your emails. She emphasized the E and paused before mail. That summer, I heard email mentioned with increasing frequency. Things are changing so fast, my father said. Today at work, I surfed the World Wide Web. <laughs> One second, I was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. One second later, I was in Anutkabir. Anutkabir, Ataturk's mausoleum, was located in Ankara. I had no idea what my father was talking about, but I knew that there was no meaningful sense in which he had been in Ankara that day, so I didn't really pay attention. On the first day of college, I stood in line behind a folding table and eventually received an email address and temporary password. The address had my last name in it, Karada, but all lowercase and without the Turkish soft G, which is silent. From an early age, I'd understood that a silent G was funny. The G is silent, I would say, in a weary voice. and it was always hilarious. <laughs> I didn't understand how the email ad address was an address or what it was short for. What do we do with this, hang ourselves? I asked, holding up the ethernet cable. <laughs> you plug it into the wall, said the girl behind the table. Insofar as I'd had any idea about it at all, I had imagined that email would resemble faxing and would involve a printer, but there was no printer. There was another world. You could access it from certain computers, which were scattered throughout the ordinary landscape, 
and looked no different from regular computers. Always there, unchanged, in a configuration nobody else could see, was a glowing list of messages from all the people you knew and from some people you did not know, all in the same letters like the universal handwriting of thought or of the world. Some messages were formally epistolary with dear and sincerely, others telegraphic, all in lowercase with missing punctuation, like they were being beamed straight from people's brains. And each message contained the one that had come before, so your own words came back to you. All the words you threw out, they came back. It was like the story of your relations with others, the story of the intersection of your life with other lives was constantly being recorded and updated and you could check it at any time. Um, I'm gonna skip a little and read a tiny bit more. So this is about her roommate. Hannah bought a refrigerator for the common room. She said I could use it if I bought something for the room too, like a poster. I asked what kind of poster she had in mind. Psychedelic, she said. <laughs> I didn't know what a psychedelic poster was, so she showed me her psychedelic notebook. It had a fluorescent tie-dyed spiral with purple lizards walking around the spiral and disappearing into the center. What if they don't have that, I asked. Then a photograph of Albert Einstein, she said, as if it were the obvious next choice. Albert Einstein? Yeah, one of those black and white pictures. You know, Einstein. The campus bookstore turned out to have a huge selection of Albert Einstein posters. <laughs> there was Einstein at the blackboard, Einstein in a car, Einstein sticking out his tongue, Einstein smoking a pipe. I didn't totally understand why we had to have an image of Einstein on our wall, but it was better than buying my own refrigerator. The poster I got was no better or worse than the other Einstein posters in any way that I could see, but Hannah seemed to dislike it. Hmm, she said. I think it'll look good there. She pointed to the space over my bookshelf. But then you can't see it. That's okay, it goes best there. From that day on, everyone who happened by our room, neighbors wanting to borrow stuff, residential computer staff, student council candidates, all kinds of people to whom my small enthusiasm should have been a source of little or no concern went out of their way to disabuse me of my great admiration for Albert Einstein. <laughs> Einstein had invented the atomic bomb, abused dogs, neglected his children. There were many greater geniuses than Einstein, said a Bulgarian freshman who had stopped by to borrow a book. Alfred Nobel hated mathematics and didn't give the Nobel Prize to any mathematicians. There were many who were more deserving. Oh, I handed him the book. Well, see you around. Thanks, he said, glaring at the poster. This is the man who beats his wife, forces her to solve his mathematical problems, to do the dirty work, and he denies her credit, and you put his picture on your wall. Listen, leave me out of this, I said. It's not really my poster, it's a complicated situation. He wasn't listening. Einstein in this country is synonymous with genius, while many greater geniuses aren't famous at all. Why is this, I am asking you? <laughs> I sighed. Maybe it's because he's really the best and even jealous mudslingers can't hide his star quality, I said. Nietzsche would say that such a great genius is entitled to beat his wife.
That shut him up. <laughs> After he left, I thought about taking down the poster. I wanted to be a courageous person, uncowed by other people's dumb opinions. But what was the dumb opinion? Thinking that Einstein was so great or thinking he was the worst person ever? In the end, I left the poster up. Thank you. Those were great readings. Thank you so much. I remember those Einstein posters. Yeah. I had a boyfriend who, like, he dropped out of high school and he had one of those posters. I'm not even making that up. And also the psychedelic posters, too. They yeah, were everywhere. Yeah, they were yeah. everywhere. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I'm hoping we can start by talking about source material or inspiration. And Aleph, I'll, I'll start with you because it's the most obvious place, the idiot. Um, I'm wondering when you became exposed to Dostoevsky and, and what led you to call your book The Idiot, and if you had any concerns about it. Oh, and let me add another question. No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I did have some concerns about it. It's, and it, it turns out that in most countries, uh, titles are not copyrighted, so you could actually call your book mm -hmm. like the you know, seven ways to influence people and make friends or whatever that famous <laughs> book is. But um, there's only one country that I know of that where the titles are, are copyrighted, and that's Germany. But in Germany, idiot is gendered, so it came out as the lady idiot. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, although, yeah, although in Russia, they just, they translated it as the same, wait, no, I'm getting it confused. Yeah, no, they, they translated it as, in Russian, it's also gendered, so I wanted it to be idiotka, because it's me. But um, yeah, they translated it as idiot. So now I look like an insane person because I, I was just there for the first time since I wrote any books at all. I went there a lot when I was a student because I was studying Russian literature. Um, and uh, I've now published two books. And I guess to be funny, they like gave them the exact same title as the Dostoevsky books, which in English, the possessed is actually demons in Russian and they called it. So like I, I was going around, like I wrote two books and one is called you know, BSC and the others called Idiot, and it was just like, I was like a total asshole, but uh, yeah. <laughs> was, um, so, uh, I, I thought, I always thought of myself as someone who was not very influenced by Dostoevsky, and um, I, I, I was always, 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 since high school, I was really into Russian literature, but, you know, then when I started studying it, you have to d decide if you're a Tolstoy person or a Dostoevsky person, and I was always like, I'm a Tolstoy person, not that you should have to choose because it's not a contest, but, um, <laughs> and I, I just always thought that Dostoevsky was, was um, just too much and too um, artificial and too uh, overhyped and, and and not not in the sense that just like it's like he would just take these kind of like super abstract situations and have each character is personifies like a different philosophical school of thought and then he like just cranks up the states and it's like what would happen to the greatest of the greatest humiliation and the situation of the greatest state and I was just like this just has nothing to do with my life and um, <laughs> I was like more interested in, in Tolstoy uh, but then so now and it's not like I've written like 18 books I've written two books and one is called The Possessed and one is called Idiot and then like I at the, like the third time that someone was like 
so, you know, why did you, and I was like, oh, Dostoevsky's actually not that important. I was like, I sound like a completely insane person with no self-knowledge. And then I started to remind myself of um, Nabokov, who in his lectures on Russian literature, he's always finding some way to like shit on Dostoevsky. He's like, Dostoevsky's a, war, you know, oh, the harlot and the criminal sat next to each other in the candlelight over the great book, like what is this garbage? And, um, but then if you like, I, I, I took a graduate course in Nabokov when I was in, in, in graduate school and he was super influenced by him, like especially by the double and like this can, you know, it can be like textually demonstrated. And then, so I was like, okay, so clearly there's some body of people for whom Dostoevsky is very important, but they themselves think that Dostoevsky to them is not important. And then I was like, <laughs> and I, I belong to that group. And, why, and then I was like, why, why should that be? And then I thought, well, like, I mean, it makes perfect sense because it's like, oh, Dostoevsky, I hate him, but I also can't stop reading him. Like, it, 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 so, um, yeah, I guess that's my answer about Dostoevsky. So I decided to, <laughs> I decided to call this book The Idiot. So I wrote it, I wrote it about a time that I was really embarrassed about. I wrote it about the time when I was 18 to 19 years old, and I wrote it when I was 23, and I'd had like one year of grad school, so, and I knew the difference, so I knew the difference between the narrator and the protagonist, which, so I was like, you know, I was like gonna widen that difference and have the, the narrator be much smarter than the protagonist. And then when I reread it when I was like 38, I was like, this 23-year-old who thinks she's so smart sounds like, a complete mental pain. Like it was like, oh, when we're young, we make these mistakes and we don't know, and then we get older, you know, when we're 23, and then we know all these things. <laughs> it was just like embarrassing. And the like everything that was in it to distance myself from the mistakes just seemed like really strained and anxious and like false. And the only parts of it that seemed true and valuable were all the things about, like all the things that I didn't know that I'd forgotten because I'd been so traumatized by not knowing and so ashamed by all the mistakes that I'd made and had put so much effort into trying to forget it. And that seemed like a really valuable gift to get back at age 38, at which time I'd, I'd completely lost that like authentic knowledge. But also the shame was kind of less because it was so different. Like it just seemed like a science experiment. Like, oh, if you take this person from this you know, situation and put them over there and have them interact with these people, like it's gonna turn out like that. Oh, like there was just nothing to be ashamed of and I thought mm -hmm. um, actually the, the, it, the valuable part to me is, is all of the kind of gaps in, in knowledge and that's when I decided to call it the idiot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you give good answer. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know that uh, The Idiot was, as you've just explained, partially autobiographical. Oh, it was wholly autobiographical. Fully autobiographical, okay. Um, Mona, please tell me uh, that <laughs> your experience at Brown was, um, even before we get to the exploding bunnies, um, please tell me it wasn't as bad as... I recognize those girls, though, with yeah. their little hands. No, they're real. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it all happened. <laughs> um, yeah, no, um, I definitely drew from some anxieties that I felt, that, that I felt consistently, like, just throughout my, my school life, um, just encountering a group and not really knowing how to navigate that, um, just because I'm, I'm somebody who doesn't really feel that comfortable in groups. Um, so I definitely played into that with, uh, with Bunny, for sure. Um, but I was, I was working on another book um, when I started working on Bunny, and that book was failing 
miserably. I just couldn't get a foothold in it, and um, I was plodding along, and it was kind of boring me. And I had this other book just cooking in the back of my head, and um, there were I knew there was a girl gang in it, and I knew there was this outsider girl um, in it who was kind of seeing them from a distance and having all these feelings, and... Um, I saw a bunny hopping across my campus, and <laughs> I took it as a sign, and I just, um, I switched projects, and it, as it turned out, that voice of that outsider character came really easily to me, um, very easily, and it was such a, it was such a joy to write that I just kept going, yeah. Wow, it, you can tell, it, I mean, it's such a joy to read, too, but oh, it feels you. like the joy comes, comes out on the page. Anakena, Bina was a character in your first book, Malarkey. Yeah. Um, why did you want to revisit her? Or not even revisit her. Why did you want to put her center stage? Well, I um, originally, Martin John, my second novel, was also a residual character in Malarkey. Sorry, I see, is this on? Yes. Yeah? Okay, I'm pretty loud, so it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry, I have to get very intelligent now for a moment. Besides these two smart women. Because I didn't go to grad school. I'm 48 and I've never been to grad school. I'm actually starting to feel very good about that. Um, I've been to the petrol station, though, a number of times. Been to the cattle market. You, you made the right call. I went to the medical library in Kingston recently. Um, yeah, well, Bina had a line in Malarkey. I don't know if anybody here has read my novel, Malarkey, and no pressure. You have seven <laughs> years left to read it. Thank you. Seven, Thank you. Seven, why seven years? Why? Oh, it took me 10 to 12 years to write it, oh. so I figure you get exactly oh, the same okay. length of time to right. read it. And then the book bursts into flames, right? I've seen it. I've seen it on YouTube. This is what happens. Um, so Bina had a line in Malarkey that always stayed with me, and it was... Uh, when our woman is in the hospital, uh, Bina comes into her and she says, don't let them put anything in your mouth and don't let them put anything up the other end either. I don't know why I did that signal, sorry. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, that was very vulgar. Um, and that wasn't what Bina meant at all. Um, so it stayed with me and I thought, this is such a good warning. I, I've been in the hospital, I've been alone in a hospital I've had a lot of thoughts in those hospitals. It's very difficult to get into a hospital these days. Mm -hmm. If you actually get admitted to a hospital, you panic. You think, you know, they said, you know, whatever it was, they, I'm dying. Because nobody lets you into the hospital, right? Um, so I uh, remembered that line and I thought, God, is that great? L language of warnings. And so I'm kind mm -hmm. of the opposite end of the planet to, to Mona and, and Elif. Uh, and that is, you know, I'm interested in this novel, and it seems, actually, in all my novels, I'm very interested in dying, um, not being 20. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was a very serious, dour 20-year-old who had no fun whatsoever. Um, and so I, I thought, well, when we're born, there's, uh, like, young folk, right? When you're born, um, there's a lot of warnings, like, don't eat your sister, don't stab your brother with a fork, watch that, be careful. So I thought, well, what about this idea that when you leave the planet, that you leave behind a series of warnings, right? For, for, for those who've been fortunate or misfortunate enough to know you. And so uh, the main source of inspiration for Pina was actually, does anybody know um, that video on YouTube? <laughs> that one video. 
Werner Herzog's Demented Penguin. Oh, yeah. You know, the mm -hmm. penguin that's... Thank you, Mona. Um, um, there are like two penguin fans up here. And that's good. That's all you need. Um, so the penguin is walking across the Arctic tundra. Mm -hmm. But he's going the wrong way. And all the other penguins are heading, like, south. And so poor old penguin. And then Werner Herzog's somber voice says, he is walking towards certain death. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> Really? I, yeah. And so I thought, when I thought about Beiner, like, I don't write autobiographically. That's why I had to put my rollers in today, to, like, get into my character. Um, I don't actually write autobiographically. I am just a bit of a lunatic, um, just regularly. And so my novels are actually quite calm compared to, you know, me. But I, I thought about that, and I saw this woman walking. Beiner is 74 years old. And, and so she's walking towards, I saw her walking towards the edge of the planet, um, shouting warnings over her shoulder back to us. And nobody is coming to help Bina. Nobody will save Bina. Um, she is in her kitchen and she is stuck with a violent man who she took in. So I was very interested in, well, why do women lumber themselves with useless men? You know, that bit might have been a bit biographical. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but not very biographical. And so then I discovered Thomas Bernhardt. Like, I was 46 yeah. and a half years old before I discovered Thomas Bernhardt. And, you know, he has this fantastic, dour, Herzogian tone of, you know, oh, the kitchen curtains in Austria are the worst kitchen <laughs> curtains in the world. The back doors in Austria are the most stupid back doors. And, um, and I liked that. And I thought, uh, right, uh, okay. And then I also got very obsessed with the paintings of Francis Bacon. I mean, you did ask about source material, so... I'm just mm -hmm. giving you what it is, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was looking at the paintings of Francis Bacon. I was very struck. I don't know if anybody's looked at the paintings of Francis Bacon, but have a look on your way home. There's a, a beautiful quality of, like, desolation and isolation and just despair. And I'm um, kind of partial to it. And I thought, God, I want to make a novel where I, I catch that... that somehow in the book. So my books are always governed by, by the form. So the form becomes the content. So, um, and then when I actually recorded the audio book for this, because I did the audio book, uh, I'm not Of course it. you did the audio book. No, Who I, got, else I, got, could do I it? got a lot of grief for that audio yeah. book from Mr. Mm -hmm. Ian Brown, who wrote a nasty thing in a nameless newspaper about my narration. <laughs> but it's okay, because I've gone all across Canada giving out about him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Literally, every city I've gone to, I've just, you know, given out about Ian Brown, whoever he is. And so, <laughs> when I was recording the audiobook, though, I had this moment where I was like, fuck, Bine is just like Beowulf. Like, I, I was only at that point, I was like, there's something very Beowulf about Bina. Like, kind of accidentally Beowulf. Um, I, re I read mine, too, and I feel like I learned so much. I wish yeah. I just sat there and read it all. Yeah. I don't... Yeah. You know, because, like, you, you learn so much about your own. Yeah, you don't know anything about the book you've written. No. Until you spend. <laughs> Until you a, sit a in a closet. In yeah. a studio. Mona, I want to ask you. Sorry, yeah. Marsha. Did you read your Oh, sure. Yeah. Go right ahead. <laughs> I, I didn't. Because you're um, such a beautiful reader. Yeah, I agree. Thank you. Yeah, Sorry, no, I, I, I didn't. I, I mean, and I haven't heard my audio because I, I can't bear to 
Is it? Okay. I mean, oh. I chose the actress because her voice sounded right, but I can't bear to hear it. Could they send you actors? Yeah. They sent me clips of actresses. Yeah, that's what they did for me, too. No, I told so them uh, uh, I wanted a veto, power of veto. I don't think they'd ever heard of that before. So they said, yeah. sorry, we can't, we, can't, we can't do that. I said, Grand, you're not getting my audio book. So they said, oh, yeah. Grand, you can read it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've gone easy on the neck. I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to read the other books because Ian Brown upset me. <laughs> I'm, I'm boycotting my own books because of Ian Brown. But you're a great reader. You're a great reader. Yeah, yeah you're. A yeah. Well, you well, all, you all are. Yeah. Well, you're women, and you're up here being nice. Like, oh, the hair is harsh. That's true. I, w I want to ask. Um, we're more just, important than Ian Brown. You are so true. much more important than Ian Brown. Whoever he is. I, I'm, I, I am ashamed right. that I got so affected by that four words in the Globe and Mail. Okay, I'm going to get in trouble with uh, <laughs> one of my colleagues. No, I, uh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> let's talk about unreliable narrators, <laughs> shall we? Um, because, well, can we, let's talk about Samantha because sure. she seems quite unreliable yeah. uh, to me. That's part of the fun. Yeah, I mean, that was what was so much fun about writing her, as I kind of knew right away that, um, you know, she was she was going to be a trip because she lived in her head. Um, she lives in her imagination. That's her place of consolation. But it's also, um, you know, a place where she can spin just nightmarish stories about whatever has just happened, just because she's feeling vulnerable, feeling out of place. Um, and she's blocked. I mean, she's a writer, she's in an MFA program, and she's blocked. So all of that creative energy instead is just going towards, you know, spinning these stories about the world around her. And that world becomes increasingly nightmarish um, as, as you move through the book. But that space, that imaginative space that she lives in um, is also, you know, it's her creative place too. And so, you know, there's a lot of possibility for magic there. And, um, and so the book also takes this kind of wondrous turn too. She experiences a lot of things with the bunnies as magical. You know, their power over her feels very magical to her. Um, so I, I had fun with that, kind of her, her, dis her sense of disorientation, her tendency to live in her head, and how her imagination is kind of both a blessing and a curse. You know? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, it had me wondering, well, when does a lie become a story? Or when does, uh, when is imagination good? When is it productive? When is it not? Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Her imagination is both, yeah, it's both. It's a dangerous place, but it wouldn't, but it's also like, it's got so much potential to like bring her joy and bring her comfort and bring her solace and, and give her power. Um, and that was really, really fun to like experiment with in the book, sort of just living in her head moment to moment. And so many, I mean, she lies, she's a liar. Like she, she even admits that in the book. She says she would tell stories about what happened on any given day and she would lie to make them better stories, you know? Uh, yeah. In The Idiot, I, I think the most interesting area of uh, or question of unreliable narrators comes in the emails mm -hmm. because you can take on a different persona when you're writing an email, which was, I guess, new, obviously, mm -hmm. at that time. Um, do, do you find that in your own life, that you can be uh, a little bit different than who you are when you're writing an email? Oh, yeah. That was definitely, that was definitely part, of, part of the 
book. And actually, um, so those emails, so I, my thinking about fiction and nonfiction has undergone a lot of change. Uh, it, it's always been kind of fraught and in the past, since, since Me Too, it went through a lot of changes. Uh, so when I wrote the, when I published The Idiot, I was really committed to calling it a novel and in, insisting that um, I, I shouldn't have to talk about how much of it was true. And if people asked how much of it was true, I was like, parts of it were true. And, um, uh, but like all of it was true. And um, <laughs> the, the, the emails from the guy, so there's a, she, she has this kind of like, the, there's a love interest and they are too shy to talk to each other, but they send each other these emails which are quite different from how they really are and then they, you know, actually meet and it's super awkward and uh, the, the emails just get weirder and weirder and um, they mean different things for the, for the different people but they don't totally realize it. Anyway, so I, uh, I, I, another reason that this, I didn't actually finish this book when I tried to write it was because I thought that um, I had to change things to make it fictional and imaginative mm -hmm. to use my imagination because otherwise I would just be like copying reality because like I grew up during the Cold War and like you were supposed to be imaginative and like make things up because otherwise it wasn't like literature. So I, so when I read the draft there was like all of this just crazy stuff that made no sense and I was like what just happened and I would be like oh that was where I was trying to make it fiction. Um, and, uh, and it was kind of, it was so, so it was a relief to also, um, and, and it had a very reliable narrator who was always like, this is the thing that she did was dumb and this thing that she did was right. So like I took that out and then that was very fun to kind of just try to go back and Im imagine myself into that world. But so then there was this issue of like these emails that this other person had written to me. And so I felt, I felt kind of like my 18 year old self was all, had it become a fictional character that I could kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, cause it wasn't me anymore, but I could right. kind of like get into that world and like guess what she would do. And that felt really fun, but it felt sort of like parasitic and weird to use this other person's email. So I thought, oh, I'll just make them up. And when I made them up, they were like, and they're already like, um, they're, it's rough. It's like it's it's rough to read, um, but uh, the ones that I made up were just like completely horrible and just sounded like a total parody. So I uh, I just wrote to the guy and I was like, I wrote this book about <laughs> freshman year. Can I use your emails? And I was like, I had no idea what he was gonna say. And he was like, but it was 20 years ago by then. So he just thought it was. He was like, what? That's like, sure, go ahead. And I was like, is it okay if I like make your name Yvonne? And he was like, yeah, just use my real name. I was like, bro, I'm not using your real name. But so then he came to New York for. A, he's like a mathematician and now. He's like a math professor. So he came to New York for a conference and then we went to dinner and then afterwards. He like wrote me this email and I, I showed it to my, my girlfriend because now I'm a lesbian and she was like, um, and she, like he wrote this like kind of like marginally flirtatious, like how is it possible to look more beautiful than ever at 40? This new relationship oh must be so good for you. So I was like, oh, that's sweet. So I showed it to my girlfriend and she was like, this guy sounds just like the guy in your book. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's not—he's not coming to dinner again. No. <laughs> He—he read the book. Um, Is he invited to your wedding? Um. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, he could come to my wedding. <laughs> what, what did he think of the book? Yeah. I—he said that he liked it. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I didn't actually, so after, yeah, after I wrote it, he suggested getting dinner again, actually, and, um, <laughs> that time I was, uh, I was not in town, uh, which was kind of, um, I thought, I wasn't sure how, how it would, it would feel, but, um, <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> it's good you weren't in town. It was. Yeah, it felt. It felt not like in town. Is yeah. Um, Anna Kena, what about Bina? She is. Uh... She's totally reliable. <laughs> <laughs> She's a hundred percent reliable. People, you, you always again a, a bit like what what uh, Elif was just saying. You know, you you find out after you've written these books, people go, "Oh, unreliable narrator." You're like, yeah. "What are you talking about? She's totally reliable." We spent three bloody years making her utterly reliable. <laughs> <laughs> reliable. Um, um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm totally absorbed with this mathematician and the dinners. No. I'm like, what the hell? I don't get any bloody dinners. <laughs> Nobody caught. I, I thought when I wrote Mark and John, I'm bound to get some whacked out messages and, you know, some interesting <laughs> offers. No, I got one New York Freudian stalker analyst who was 89. That was it. <laughs> no mathematicians. Um, anyway, that's just aside. Uh, so what was the question? Reliable, unreliable narrators. Um, well, okay, it is true that uh, at the beginning of the novel, Bind is arrested. So I use this device. I'm very interested in how to create propulsion without plot. Like, what are the other means? It's to so interesting. It's like brain hacking. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's like hacking your hormones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because it's yeah. not the plot. You think it's the plot, and we're taught that it's plot, but it's not. Nah. It's something else. It's not. Mm -hmm. yeah. No, it's language. Or yeah, and Cesar Iro is bloody brilliant at this, the Argentinian surrealist guy. Because he allegedly, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. allegedly, I don't know him. But allegedly, he says he does not revise. He just hmm. does this propulsive technique where he writes and he writes and he writes. I definitely don't do that. Um, but Knausgaard, I, too. Knausgaard does something like that. He also has no plot. And I found those books is kind of addictive. I think Knausgaard should just go to bed. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just stay in bed. Um, I actually saw Knausgaard in the little free library today. And I thought, yes, he's in there with the cookbooks. You know, and they're oh, having wow. his way. You know, because yeah, it was the one with that really kind of agonized Jesus Christ yeah. face on him. Oh, my struggle. I'm like, no, yeah. I live upstairs. My struggle is much worse than your struggle down here. Um, sorry, what was the question? It was about unreliable narrators. I don't, you don't need to answer it. I mean, um, I, I have to say, okay, no, the, the, the whole, so I mean, it's very serious now. I'm just inspired by this panel. I don't usually get this excited. Um, no, the truth of the matter is um, I used a device which was uh, redacted. Um, mm. So the idea being that Bina, there are many things that Bina can't tell us because if she tells us, she's going to implicate herself and she's going to, the guards, the police, the courts are going to use that against her. So that was right. a very handy device in a way that meant I could leave a whole bunch of stuff out like anything I didn't have the answer to I was like fuck it man redacted um, <laughs> but the most important thing that had to be reliable was because really the novel is uh, a portrait of female friendship it's a deep profound <laughs> interrogation into what it is to to be a friend and so the relationship between the woman women sorry women had to be um hermetic in, in, in the sense of truth, right? And, and the woman, Bina, is, even though you hear her and she's funny and she's all over the place and she's stern, um, I mean, she's bereft. She's devastated. She's never going to recover from the fact that she's lost her beloved friend. Um, and it, and it's, it's, actually very, it's actually very sad. Yeah, and she's talking to Phil. Um, yeah, after Phil's gone and taken her life. Yeah. Um, and she's telling her, Phil was wrong, she didn't need to go, you know? So I got that, that bit's reliable. 
Well, I, what I, what was very, I mean, there's a lot that's very compelling about that book, but this, um, something I noticed with all of your books, that there is an exchange going on with someone who's not really there, uh, mm. who's only there mm. in their head, in their heart, on the screen, and somehow these relationships can be so profound, even if it's not like this. Mm -hmm. Well, how do we keep people alive when they go and die on us? You know, if you've spent 20, 30, 40 years, the person dies, they're the way in which they, they continue to live for you every single time you think about them. Mm -hmm. um, and I often wonder about that. Like, where do the dead go in our imaginations? Like, their lives stop at that point, but we still, re we still imagine them in our daily lives. I do. I see people I've lost, especially because I've been here for 20 years, I see people I've lost on benches, like, who are dead now, and, and I see them in crowds, and, mm -hmm. yeah, I should probably get some attention for that. <laughs> are you okay? I'm great. Okay. Um, I, I want to talk about um, ambiguity and the interest, the interest that it can garner, because these books have a lot of ambiguity. Is it more interesting to you, for you to write something that isn't cut and dried, clear, obvious? Anna Kena, obviously. Well, you know, life is a very complicated, mushy business. It's very messy. It's nothing, there's nothing straightforward about being a human. We are just massive contradictions, aren't we? Um, and so I know this is, I, this is, and I have to say, I, I totally respect everybody that does whatever they do in literature. It's an ecosystem, with loads of room for all sorts of things. I'm just personally not interested in the linear. I think it's, it's a fallacy. I think it's a fragrant, fragrant, a flagrant, fragrant <laughs> untruth to depict the human life in some sort of chronological way. Because we just, I mean, I know we live chronologically, but we don't. In our, you know, we don't live like that. We live backwards and forwards mm -hmm. and sideways and round the back. So, yeah, I don't think I could ever write something straightforward. I feel like I probably should, because at some point my publisher's probably going to dump me. Um, um, but that's not true, actually. If you make a bar and you make... Um, you know, and you play with forum and you play with language. Readers are amazing. They will come and they'll join you and they'll dig in and they'll get excited about it. Uh, at least about five of them did in Kingston three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've got more than five here. No, and I think they're I'm all excited. Listen, I'm very, very blessed with my readers. And, and, it's, and, and I get courage from them. I get great courage from them. Um, Mona, mm -hmm. there's a lot of ambiguity mm -hmm. in, in your book, um, which, yeah. again, seems like you're having a lot of fun with. Um, yeah. Is the ambiguity something that is also being experienced by the characters? Um, well, for Samantha, definitely. Um, like I said, she, you know, she's somebody who lives in her head. Her emotional reality is her reality. I mean, that's, you could say that about every, uh, anybody, but I mean, it really does filter her, her experience and, and messes with her. You know, she's somebody who second guesses her take on any given moment. And so, she, you know, she's, she's in a place where she's feeling, um, she's feeling outside, she doesn't belong. And um, that's really casting things in either like a very dark light in one moment, you know, where she's feeling alienated and she's feeling, um, 
just like she'll, she'll, never, um, she'll never be home where she is. And then in the next moment, she'll feel, you know, um, completely embraced and, and, you know, by the bunnies, which turns out to be a very dark thing. Um, but yeah, so no, it was very important. I, I go by voice for me. It's not so much plot, but I, I try to listen to the voice of the, of the character, and that usually leads me. Um, that's the driving force. And so for Samantha, you know, um, she generates a lot of the horror because she's outside and because she's feeling defensive and because she's feeling, um, because she's feeling like she's not understood. Um, but she's also generating uh, a lot of the sense of magic in the book too because she's totally drawn to the bunnies and they do have like a real power over her. And it's transformative for her even though it's, it's a dark transformation, yeah. I think we've all been there. Yeah, minus, <laughs> minus the explosions. Right, no, there are bunnies everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Especially um, in Victoria. Like millions of bunnies. I'm never going to Victoria after reading Mona's book. <laughs> there are a lot of bunnies. There's a bunny problem in Victoria, just to give you the context. There all, yes, yeah. and there's also a lot of bunnies at Jericho Beach. Mm. And some of them are like those story tale bunnies. They're so cute. And some of them yeah. are creepy looking. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah, there's um, no dates in Vancouver, but there's bunnies. Yeah. <laughs> Going back, circling back to the important issue. Um, Elif, the, um, the ambiguity of language is something that is a concern to the novel, mm -hmm. whereas mathematics, that is cut and dried, it's a yes, it, it's right, it's wrong, whereas there's so much room for um, error when it comes mm -hmm. to language. Um, you know, you're not speaking my language, and this is mm -hmm. something that is dealt with. It, you are um, a student and a master of languages. I'm actually really bad, but yeah, I am a student. I've studied a lot, I speak a lot of languages badly, but yeah, thank you. Okay. But that's, yeah, it still took a lot of energy. Um, your Russian is better than mine, although I can say I love you more than anyone else in the world, and oh. hi is Jack home. Oh, nice. <laughs> Had a Russian boyfriend named Jack. Oh, nice. um, long time ago. Uh, what was my question? Uh, <laughs> it was about ambiguity. The, yeah, this, this mathematics uh, linguist yeah. uh, duality and yeah. contrast that you... I think, so I, it's kind of a weird point to be, uh, just for me to be answering questions in, in general, just because, uh, or not to be answering questions, to be alive and cognizant, because uh, I spent my whole life kind of, um, my whole conscious life sort of rejecting psychoanalysis and uh, and politics, and now I think that, that everything, those like psychoanalytic criticism and, and political theory have kind of like changed how I think about everything. So the way I think about ambiguity now. I did, I, yeah, I had no patience for, um, I guess I still don't have a whole ton. So uh, ambiguity and uh, complexity was super important for me when I was growing up, and it was also very gendered. I felt that, um, uh, that my mother was very misunderstood and that her motivations were very kind of complicated. And also, we would go back and forth between Turkey and, the, and America uh, and the, the United States um, every summer, and I would just see how meanings changed. And I just grew up with this idea of relativism and context and languages and, and meaning shifting. And I was really attracted to novels because they made, it was the only form that I could see that really 
got in there on a very granular level and uh, tried to describe ambiguity and complexity and the complexity of, of human relationships, and especially the complexity of romantic relationships. And, uh, but, but, you know, historically the relationships between men and women. And now that I'm, I've not been doing relationships between men and women for the past, like, three or four years, uh, I, I, novels look extremely different to me. I reread some of my favorite Russian novels, um, like Anna Karenina and Yevgenia Negin, and it seemed to me that what they were doing was trying to create complexity where it maybe ne wasn't necessarily there for ideological reasons, and that, you know, especially in Eugene Onegin, mm -hmm. there's this relationship between Tatiana and Onegin, and Pushkin is very clear that Tatiana is smarter and kind of more noble and more pure, and that Onegin is kind of this like parody, and he's this he's kind of like puppet of different forces of fashion, and he kind of just misses the boat and doesn't get it, but Tatiana sees things in him that aren't there, and uh, she's kind of misled. But But at the end of it, like I read that when I was young, and I was like, I feel like that enabled me to then um, have relationships like the one that I describe in The Idiot, where I was describing all of the stuff that wasn't there to this guy who was really more limited than, than I thought he was. Even though I kind of knew that he wasn't, I could see that he wasn't, but I was like, I had this template for doing that, which was Eugene Onegin, which is like, <laughs> it's, this, it's this beautiful, great. So like in Russian literature, Eugene Onegin is like, it, it inaugurated this type called the superfluous man, who's this like, but so, the, you know, in a way, he's a superfluous man because, like, you know, society doesn't need him or whatever. But in a way, he's, like, the most necessary man because without Eugene Onegin, it's, like, the cornerstone of Russian, 19th century Russian literature. So it's, it's really a treatise about the necess necessariness of the superfluous man. And I feel like that's a lesson I took very much to heart, so I always had a superfluous man with me, you know, at my <laughs> side all this time. And I'm just now thinking about, like... Um, I don't know, I've, I've now gotten into second wave feminism and thinking about romance as um, sort of propaganda for the status quo. And I think, you know, it's, there's a gendered one for, for girls, which is that you have to you know, get married to a guy even if he's, you know, not that satisfying or fun and, and to talk to, you're still better off with, with him somehow. Mm -hmm. And for boys, it's... Uh, don't let those girls pin you down. Keep a, keep a space open for adventure so that if some really rich guy asks you to, you'll go and ride out in a war and get shot. Like it's, and <laughs> so they're at odds and they're really destructive and they're just to keep the small body of powerful people in power. So, and the novels are kind of making things look really complicated and interesting, which I really appreciated when I was younger because I you know, didn't have very much power and I was in the system and I found it really comforting to read Tolstoy and to see like, oh, but everyone's point of view, you know, everything makes sense from their own point of view which is true, everything does make sense from everyone's point of view, but, but then the, the message that you get is like, well, everything is intractable, it's just the human condition, everyone's suffering, but there's really no way of fixing it, but, you know, because it's complicated, and now I just feel like maybe it's not as complicated as I thought it was, and that maybe <laughs> novels are, has, have has sort of an interest, not that they, the novelists do it on purpose, but that they, they themselves have suffered so much from injustice and inequality, and they've kind of, like, internalized that system, and also, like, as you guys know, it's, it's super hard to get to the point where you can write a novel, like, there's years of hazing and of not writing novels and doing work that you don't want to do. And then by the time you get there, you don't want the revolution to happen tomorrow because you've worked so hard for the, you like, <laughs> you don't want the publishing houses to close. You want to be yeah, able to like write your books. So you yeah. kind of have an interest in perpetuating the, the things the way that they are. Yeah. 
Um, Except it's a totally futile act, writing a novel, so you always have that to keep you going, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, two things. Nobody's ever going to notice if you never write another novel. And not if you in particular don't, but, like, because they're, they're going to continue, or, you know, the work of the novel is going to continue through TV or movies or through whatever yeah. comes out. I think if this evening has proven anything, it's that <laughs> it is not a futile effort I'm to write a you, novel. When you're writing these books... <laughs> Um, we do have some time for audience questions. Uh, I would love to get some questions from the audience. I would love it if the questions contained a question. So if you, if you don't mind, um, uh, if you could keep the question brief because I will repeat it so that people can hear it. Um, all right, we've got someone in the front row with a question. Oh. As a writer, do you think it's necessary to get your MFA? No. No. <laughs> but, no, but I, I don't have an MFA. Yeah. But and I, I, do have, I do have an opinion on something related to being a writer. At these festivals, there's a lot of um, workshops of come and do this. I've taught some of them. And recently I was at one and there was some sort of a speed dating thing where you met editors I would just like to petition for there to be swimming lessons at these festivals because a lot of writers can't swim. Like, there were at least two the other day that couldn't swim. So I think we need to, like, move away from all this publishing stuff and we need to get a bit more practical. And I'd like to actually see, come to the Writers' Festival and also maybe, if you're a writer here, you can get a few swimming lessons. Like, I'd like to change the focus, basically. Okay, so we've got one no. Um, <laughs> uh, from the two MFA grads. I don't have an MFA. I did oh, you a, don't? Yeah, yeah, I only did. A PhD. Yeah, because... Oh, just which a is, PhD. No, but I mean, you can now Russian. you can get a PhD in creative writing too, but uh, when I was doing it, I think you couldn't, or maybe, I don't know why, I didn't. Uh, so mine's in literary criticism and history of literature. Um, so, yeah, I... I I don't think it's necessary, but I, I think that the thing that you have to do is write as much as you can constantly. And read. And read. And, and, read, and, yeah, like, and so if, you have, if there's something that gives you a structure to do that, then it's only good. So I have nothing bad to say about MFA. I, I would just say, yeah, I would, I would totally agree with that. And then I would add that maybe it would be good to go to a program that's funded just so that you know, you don't go into debt. Because it it's great to be able to have that structure, like you were yeah, saying, yeah. and the space and the time away from your life to work and focus on something. That's how I finished my first book. I mean, I totally owe that to going to the MFA. Um, but I had a project in my head that I knew I wanted to work on. Uh, I had a stronger sense of my voice, I think, because I went when I was a bit older. Um, so I didn't get shifted around too much, which, I mean, Bunny explores how you could get kind of tossed around a bit, um, but I, I didn't, you know. I would um, be hesitant to tell someone right after they come out of college and they're 22, go right into it. That's what I'm program. saying, I guess, yeah. is that, is I would, I would say maybe live a little first and, and then do it. Just keep writing and reading and see if it's something that really interests you and excites you and then, then go. But I think, you know, the, a funded program where you have the time to write and, and read and 
and have a you know a group of readers at your at your disposal. It's pretty that's pretty sweet. You know? I recommend uh, looking yeah. going to the writers that you love and reading their letters and their yeah, journals. That's great. And to do. going through and making a list of everything they read. And yeah. then reading oh, yeah. all those yeah. books. I've done that. Um, That's fun. Um, because if you actually think back to writers like Wolf and Joyce and whoever, I mean, they cut a lot of their teeth writing criticism. And what do they do to write criticism? They read a feck of a load of books. Right. If you go read the journals of George Eliot, that's really a revelation. Um, I mean, that woman sat about reading at night Spinoza in German to her, her bloke. Um, so, you know, I've found that highly educating. I think the critical thing is reading. Mm -hmm. uh, you could, like, never write a line and you could have a reading life and you'd, you'd be very, very fulfilled intellectually. Thank you. Another question here? <laughs> it's not a question, but it's a compliment for the rollers. <laughs> Sorry, I got very excited. Thank you. Can, okay. I, can I just so say this is this is a this is a special edition. I've never actually worn these rollers in public before. Well, and we workshopped it. We, we, we workshopped it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, we talked we, about we, it. We used uh, Bunny to help us to make yeah. a decision. You know, I was the only dissenter, <laughs> but I quickly succumbed to peer pressure and agreed that you should wear the rollers. Uh, any other questions? <laughs> Up there, yes. Will you write yeah. a sequel to The Idiot, Elif? Yeah, I, um, so I started writing a sequel to The Idiot based on some of the reception that came out for The Idiot right when, when it, so it came out right after the Trump inauguration. It was a super crazy time. And uh, based on some of the feedback that I got, I was like, I can see that I have not made myself clear. So I, <laughs> so I, started, <laughs> so I started to write a sequel. And then I started to have all these thoughts about the novel and... Um, and if it's uh, all, always an apology for the status quo and our novel's all heteronormative and am I participating in this? So now the plan at this point, it's, it's called Either Or. And, uh, and it was already called Either Or because the thing that happened to me after, in my sophomore year of college after I got back from the, all the stuff that happened in The Idiot is I read Kierkegaard's Either Or and it made me completely nuts. So uh, it, was, it was already going to be about that. Um, and it, it like kind of made me think that I had to go and like, I read Diary of a Seducer, which is part of Either Or, and I was like, oh, okay, so now oh I have to have gosh. sex with all these people, and it was like a huge disaster. <laughs> so that's what that's about. And then, uh, but then there's also like a, an essayistic component, which is about how like novels are kind of impossible. So, so the way the book is going to be is it's like half of it is going to be a novel that's a continuation of The Idiot, and half of it is going to be like kind of memoir essay about how like novels wow. are impossible. That sounds cool. Wow. wow. That's amazing. Fingers crossed it works. Yeah, it will work. Yeah. Can't wait to read it. Oh, Hurry thank up. You. <laughs> um, any other questions? Somebody up at the back there. The big. Oh, thank you. Yeah, Did it, everyone hear that? Or 
Okay, great. Yeah, it's a very nightmarish section of the book because it's, it's, it's not a long section. It's just the part where Samantha's completely, she's been completely absorbed into the cult. So it's really Samantha's voice. It's just that now everybody's bunny, including her, because they call each other bunny and now she is a bunny. And they too. call each other bunny, but they have like there's creepy doll there's, and like yeah, there's like Samantha. There's five, yeah, yeah, she gave them nicknames um, when she was the outsider. She kind of gave them all nicknames. There's cupcake, creepy doll, vignette, and the Duchess. Um, <laughs> and uh, but when she's when she gets kind of into the into the clique, she forgets those names and. You know, at first it's their actual names and then they're all bunny. Um, so in my head, it was, Samantha's voice is kind of in there. You can kind of hear it a little bit. Um, and her rejection of the world is in there just slightly. Um, but really it's like she's in this really strange psychological and emotional space. It was actually very easy to write that section. I had a lot of fun with it. To speak in the bunny voice was such a pleasure. Yeah. It's yeah. so funny yeah, and smart. Fun. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, any other questions? Uh, would you like to take over Anna Kano since I can't uh, yeah. seem to see the... Uh, yeah, sure. No, uh, they're, somebody oh, they're up all, at the back. No, I see one. Okay, okay sorry. <laughs> somebody up at the back. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, the question is, um, in The Idiot, I drone on about the difference between the ethical life and the, it was stated more politely than that, uh, the difference between the ethical life and the aesthetic life, and could I talk a little bit more about that? So Either Or by Kierkegaard is actually all about the, so okay, so in The Idiot, she has a friend who, um, who tells her that uh, the difference between you and me is that I live an ethical life and you live an aesthetic life, and, uh, and one, one of the attractive things about this friendship is that this friend of hers who's like a year older and is like more kind of cosmopolitan is always like, the thing with you is that you're like this and then I'm like this. And they represent these two different systems. Uh, so in real life, um, I did find out about this idea of the aesthetic life when I was in college. And uh, I, I hadn't heard of it before. Um, and I, I'm writing about it now in, in either or in the sequel about how I, I didn't know what the point of life was other than um, that you're supposed to make as much money as you can and have children and like take care of your children with the money because my, my parents were like really non, like not just non-religious but like they're from like a secularist background in Turkey and it's like it's kind of, um, so yeah they were, they were actually not just non-religious but like slightly anti, like my dad was anti-religious. Um, so I, that was not something that I thought of as, as um, and so then I was like, well, if you're not religious, then like, what's the point? What are you supposed to be doing? And I looked around and all anyone seemed to be talking about was like making money and like how worried they were about their kids. And then I got to college and I found out about the, this thing of like the aesthetic life, which was like sort of a 19th century idea of living your life as if it's a work of art. And then I thought, oh, this is gonna solve all of these problems for me. It's gonna, because like, first I'm gonna know like what to do because I'll just think, oh, if I was a person in a book, what would I want, what would I want that person to do? And then it's gonna solve this problem of what am I gonna write about because I always wanted to be a writer, but I was like, I, I took some, like, at first, I, you know, I wrote all these journals that were just about stuff that happened to me. And then I took a creative writing class when I was like 15. And like, I was like, what years, like, it was like exercises, like right from the perspective of a supermarket checkout person who won the lottery. And I was like, what, <laughs> who is this person? Like, I have my own, like, I have so much, uh, 
like I, I have life. S- yeah, so much life that <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to explain that I don't have any bandwidth for this like extra person who I have to write about. <laughs> now. So then I thought, okay, I'm just gonna live an aesthetic life and then I'll write about that. But then the aesthetic models that I was following was like, so in Kierkegaard, the ethical life is um, the, it's represented by this judge who's like a family man and he's basically like, you have to get married and it's gonna be awful, but that's, uh, it's gonna be more uh, ethical and actually more interesting because it's gonna be so hard. It's completely not convincing. And then the <laughs> aesthetic life is also terrible. So at the end, it's, you know, he's actually like, you shouldn't do either one, you should like become a religious, you should become a Christian, which is mm. different, but from the, Kierkegaard was a, was a complex guy, but, uh, but the aesthetic one um, is, is represented by this book, Diary of a Seducer, and it's, of course, it's a man seducing and destroying young girls, so I remember reading that when I was a young girl and being like, wait, so what do I do? Do I get seduced and destroyed, or like, do oh, I God. seduce and destroy young girls, or do I just like <laughs> seduce, like, guys and like try to destroy them, and like, is there a way to do this without anyone getting destroyed? And um, so, but now I think that the yeah I think that 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 it's that framing that way is is really misguided and that's something that I'm exploring in my new book. Thank you for that Thank question you. and that answer. Um, we're almost out of time, but I'd like to ask the two of you what you're working on now, Mona. Oh um, yeah, I'm I'm working on a on a new book. Um, it's uh, I don't want to jinx it, um, but it's a it's a because I'm I'm very superstitious about that. Um, but it's a cousin to Bunny in some ways, and it's also a cousin to Thirteen Ways as well. Oh, so great. it's been very fun. It has awesome. a it has a voice that I'm very into, so it's good. Cousin Bunny is kind of an amazing title. Cousin Bunny is. A I good might title. write a fanfic called Cousin <laughs> Bunny. <laughs> Anna Kana, what about you? Um, I'm trying to finish a novel uh, that's my first Vancouver novel. Awesome. Yeah, Great. Yeah, but I've a uh, really hard time. Um, Are these people all in it? <laughs> yeah, you can all be in it. Basically, you, you can all be in it. Just approach me after the break. And, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, uh, it's called The Intellectual Brothel. So there's a lot of room, you know, <laughs> uh, a lot of themes. Um, <laughs> But it's interesting, because I've been having a really hard time writing in Vancouver, um, which is odd, because I've only re- I've written four books in Vancouver, three novels, and uh, another book that nobody read, which is fine. Um, but, but it's weird, so um, I'm thinking I'm going to have to go to Montreal to finish it, because uh, I went to Buenos Aires. I was down in Argentina for a month, uh, and I, I kind of wrote quite well down there. Well, I don't know. I always feel like I haven't written anything. Do you feel like that? Yes. Like, I was thinking, oh, my God, I have written nothing this year. And then a friend of mine texted me. He said, I thought you wrote your face off in Buenos Aires. And I thought, God, I'm probably lying on text to him. Um, (laughs) But it's weird. I do find, um, like, the first novel was set in, in in the west of Ireland. Honestly, place is not one of my interests. I'm not interested in... You know, I don't think fiction is Google Map. I'm not interested in giving you the best description of a Dublin tree. Um, then the second one was set in London, in the underground, and a little bit in Ireland. And then this one is again. It's Bynaville. It doesn't need geography, but it is in Ireland. Um, and so all of those three novels were all v- written here in Vancouver. <laughs> and now I'm actually trying to write one in Vancouver. It's not going very well. Hmm. Um, so I'm probably going to have to go someplace else. Yeah, like that makes sense. Honduras or somewhere. Yeah. It worked for James Joyce. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I think James Joyce owed so much money, he couldn't come back to the country. <laughs> <laughs> he was also male, and, you know, everything kind of works a bit different, especially if you were him. You That's know? true. Um, listen, my expectations for this night were high, and you all have exceeded them. Thank you so much for an absolute delight of a night. You're, you're wonderful, wonderful authors, but also amazing people to talk to. And all of their books are for sale out there, and they're going to sign books. Yeah, because we are starving up here. Yeah, we are. So we, we, need, we need you to bring us our books to sign. I also want to thank uh, the audience. You guys were great. You were so were reacted. You reacted Ooh, so beautifully. Much. Thank you. Yay. And um, wonderful moderator. Yay, Marsha. Yay. <laughs> and she does the, how many events are you doing in this festival? At this festival, three. Right, oh, wow. uh, and that means she has to read three by three That's books, right. and she's like our national arts correspondent. That's a big job. Oh. Stop. <laughs> uh, and a big thank you to the Vancouver Writers Fest and all the people who make this happen. Thank you so much. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Books and Ideas Audio, a presentation of the Vancouver Writers' Fest. You can find Bina, Bunny, and The Idiot wherever books or audiobooks are sold, including through the Vancouver Writers' Fest's Libro.fm store. To hear more events like this one, please visit our website at writersfest.bc.ca.